Uh, but, you know, you start out the new year, and people, uh, our, our television networks, they're trying to fill up airspace and things, and they, uh, you know, they, they, they have these shows, you know, reviewing 2015, you know, that type of stuff, and some of the greatest mistakes of 2015, the biggest blunders of 2015, Steve Harvey, number one, but um, <laughs> that one, I never get tired of watching it. Especially when he says, but it's a great show anyway. Great night anyway. Yeah, not, for, not for some, Steve. Some of the great innovations of 2015. But there's one show that even talked about the greatest inventions, the greatest innovations of all time. When you think all time, that's a long time. Now, of course, the wheel. That's got to be in there, right? I mean, the invention of the wheel. And I don't know how it started out, but, you know, somebody got the wheel, then they figured out I can put a cart on it, right? And it can help me carry stuff, and then somebody else figured out I can make animals carry it for me and pull it for me. And then, you know, of course, somebody figured out how to make a steam engine and then the combustion, internal combustion engine and things. To, but basically, it all gets back down to the wheel, making things go. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, uh, you got the engines, and they have electric engines. Those are really coming on big because the invention of electricity, huge invention that has changed the world in incredible ways. Another one I'm, I personally I love is the discovery that the world is indeed not flat. Um, and it's hard to see that picture, but uh, it, it drops off sharply right after that boat. Uh, it goes there, but it's glad that that's really not the case. Of course, you know, the, I don't know if you, if you can say if fire was an invention. Maybe it's more of a discovery type of a thing. Uh, you know, and then you got fire, and you learn to cook with fire, and then you've got induction, you know, now, and then, of course, microwaves and all of that stuff. And, you know, change, sometimes innovations happen, and it goes, this changes everything everything sometimes people don't see it though there's a cat uh you know by the name of uh, lord kelvin now when you have a title lord you know you're either jesus you're or or you're british and, and he was <laughs> and he was british from the royal society you know about 1895 said heavier than air flying machines are impossible okay Lord Kelvin missed that one. Um, there was a fellow, Thomas Watson, in 1943, not that long ago. Some of you might even be able to remember that. I'm not going to even mention Arnold's name. But he said, the chairman of IBM says, I think there was a world market for maybe five computers. Uh, the president of Digital Equipment in 1977 said, there's no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. Sometimes we miss it. The invention's right there. And you miss it. A, a guy wrote this book called Silicon Snake Oil. It was about how, you know, people are trying to help tell us that computers are going to do this, and they're never going to do it. They're all trying to fool us. He said in his book, we'll soon buy books and newspapers straight over the Internet. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yet, uh, just this weekend, I think I bought a couple of books uh, on my iPad. Sometimes these things have people, you know, they miss it. Sometimes, though, they have an epiphany. 
They're sure of one thing, but something happens. And it changes their perspective, and they go with it. Now, there's this guy, Steve Chin. Does anybody know who Steve Chin is? He said, there's just not that many videos I want to watch. Yet he's the co-founder of YouTube. <laughs> so something happened to Steve that he said, I don't know, maybe there's videos other people want to watch. I, I don't understand. Daryl Zanuck, he's the co-founder of 20th Century Fox, said television will not be able to hold on to any market it captures for more than six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. I don't know if Daryl made the change and had the epiphany, but somebody at 20th Century Fox decided maybe TV's going to be around a while, and then they have, of course, Fox Network and and Fox Sports, and Fox everything, you know, and they, they made the change because they saw something, and they make a change. You jump into the Bible, because this is church, right? And you get a guy named Peter. He's a fisherman. He's a good Jewish guy, just hanging out, doing his thing, and he meets up with this fellow, this prophet named Jesus. And he so affects his life that he leaves his vocation, leaves his family, and says, I'm going to go follow this guy. And then when he says follow Jesus, it's not like what we mean follow Jesus. He means, like, where you go, I will be there. I'm following, I'm going to be with you. And he continually has these growth spurts, these epiphanies. I, I even heard a lesson one time calling them, like, uh, uh, other conversions. Because it's such a major jump in his spiritual life. I mean, walking on water, that'll do it to you. Okay? Uh, there was another time when there was, you know, Pete, he, he was discouraged. He went out fishing. That was what he did. That's what he knew. He couldn't catch anything. I've been there many times. And Jesus comes along and says, try on the other side of the boat. And Pete, trying to be diplomatic, going, Jesus, come on, man. I know what I'm doing, and there ain't no fish over there. If they're not here, they're not there. Right? Right? And Jesus goes, hey, give it a shot. And so Pete says, all right. And there's just a miraculous, unprecedented catch. And, Jesus, and Peter, it just changed it. He goes, wow. I mean, Jesus, I thought you were here, and now I see that you're here. Of course, we all know about the fall, you know. Right, literally, you know, not, not, not long hours after Peter has vowed to fight and die for Jesus, we find him not only not fighting, not even arguing, He's saying, I don't even know who, Jesus who? He's not even my friend. I don't even know him. Yet, a few days later, we find Jesus forgiving him, comforting him, and giving him a challenge. And this was a major growth spurt for Peter. Even though even later in his life, he would mess up again. And he would have to be challenged by Paul. The Bible says, and it points out, it's kind of interesting, it's a side note. Uh, he challenges him publicly, and Peter doesn't get an attitude, which is kind of cool. You know, most people get an attitude. I just don't like the way you did it. Peter knew he was busted. He knew Paul was right, and he said he had to change. My own journey has had many dramatic changes. In high school, I was kind of the wild child, and I had a reputation I could not live down and I could not deny. I tried denying it, and people would call me a liar. If you dated me, you had that reputation too. It didn't matter what you did. 
It was solid. I remember arguing with somebody. You were doing coke Saturday night. I'm going, no, that wasn't me. I, I, I was not doing coke Saturday night. Yes, you were. I saw you. I'm going, it wasn't me. He goes, no, I was there. And I go, well, that might be true, but I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was so ingrained as, as to who I was and what was going on in my life. Yet at 18, I said, okay, I'm going to shift. I'm going to change. Made a dramatic change. Left all my high school friends. Literally, I think I've seen one since high school. And I bumped into her accidentally in Massachusetts. I'm going. <laughs> and uh, made a change. Went to seminary. Became a minister. Yet four or five years later, I made an, had another epiphany, another conversion-type experience, another like, wow, what I thought I knew, I didn't really know. And, you know, Phyllis and I and, and, our, and our three children, we decided we, we need help, we need to grow, we need somebody to help us take this new epiphany, this new revelation, and take it deeper and really make it a part of our lives. So we, we packed up and moved to New England. When we were up there, things were going and things were great. Now, th this is going to be funny for some of you. There was a time in the Boston Church of Christ, and as many of you know, in the International Churches of Christ that I'll talk to you in a, talk about in just a moment, we didn't have musical instruments. We had all a cappella. Matter of fact, last night, we are at the coupler's house, and uh, there was a guy there that used to be a part of the church many, many years ago. He was like, you have instruments now? What? Because we didn't have that. And I remember the time when the elders and, and, and such got up and told the church, we've really studied this out, and there's really nothing in the Bible that says don't have instruments. So what we're going to do is open it on up. And if we want to have instruments, have instruments. Now, I was like going, well, that's great, but I don't like that. I, don't, I like the old gospel, you know, like God intended, a cappella. And, and so for a while, I, I didn't like it. And then I started realizing, well, do I really like acapella that much? I never listened to it any other time. Why is it that that's kind of like church music and not just music music and whatever. So now I've kind of switched to the whole other side. I, I really don't like acapella all that much. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about people like pentatonics and those kind of guys, because that's like from another planet acapella <laughs> that none of us can do anyway. I'm not talking about, we say, well, that's a cappella. Not like we do. <laughs> that's a whole nother ball game. But, you know, I just, I, I, that's just kind of, you know, I, I've made switches. Today I'm going to talk about or really introduce another epiphany. Another shift in how we see things. Another conversion, if we will. We're going to call it the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> oh, have mercy. When you preach from an iPad, you got to be careful, you know, because all of a sudden fantasy football will tell you you need to trade players and just jumps right up on your screen and you're going, holy smoke, okay. <laughs> that was not the epiphany, though. This sermon, though, is here to really introduce a Bible class that's going to start next week. It's going to last nine weeks, of which we're going to go into a lot of detail. This next year as a church... We are going to focus in on and, and really get down on how are we doing as a church, what, what are we teaching, what are we standing for, 
We're going to examine ourselves. In 2016, we're going to be focusing in on growing and maturing in the area of reaching out and bringing other people to the Lord. We're going to really focus in on that. But what we need to figure out as we get started is, is what does the Bible actually say about how to do that and how do we help other people become Christians? Now, to examine this and re-look at things, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to do about all kinds of things. And when you think about, you know, well, what does the Bible really say? Primarily, that's a study in the book of Acts, okay? Because that's where the conversions happen. The Gospels, they're, that, they're not Christians. There's no Christianity yet. That doesn't happen until after the resurrection. And then all the other, the epistles, you know, Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, all of those books, are written to people who are already Christians. If you want to figure out how did they become Christians, that's primarily a study in the book of Acts. And, and primarily, even within Acts, it's what we call, or what I like to call the, um, the oh, help me, I just lost the term, uh, pattern conversions. You watch it, who got, what, what did they do? And so what I did about three months ago, three or four months ago in preparations for this, I asked Phyllis, the elders and their wives, and Josh and Michelle, study this out. Figure out what does the Bible actually really say about this? Because if that's our task, we need to know. And so we were doing that, and even Phyllis and I would have discussions, and she'd go, yeah, but what about this verse? And she'd quote, because Phyllis, she knows her scriptures. You know, she's got a lot of scriptures. And I'd go, well, yeah, that's true, but, but who was that scripture written to? She'd go, Christians. She'd go, okay, then it doesn't really apply to how to become a Christian. If it's already written to somebody who's already a Christian. And so we, got it. we kept thinking through this and talking about it. Well, about two or three weeks into that, Kevin sent Ron and I a link to this other church that's been going through this. Uh, this other church in our family of churches. And then I find out after talking about that there's several churches, not too many in the Midwest, but around the world that are going through this. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this is a God thing. Because I didn't know about all of this, but I said, we, we, we need to look at this. And maybe they said I, they didn't know about it, but everybody's kind of looking at it. But it doesn't really matter if everybody does or not. We are responsible for who we are and uh, where we stand before God. So the conclusion of all of these things and conversations is actually the topic of the Bible classes that are going to be coming up starting next week. You're not going to get it all here because it's way too big. When there is a, a shift in how you do things, a major shift... A lot of times, it takes more than just one lesson to do it and to get it in. We're going to talk about the keys to the kingdom. I want you to consider something. In Matthew 16, this is where we get the phrase, keys to the kingdom, in Matthew 16. Beginning in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you people say uh, that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. We just sang that kind of song there. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, well, what about you? Who do you think I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. That's how he got his name, Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand the significance of that statement? 
I will give you a dude, a guy, Peter. And I personally believe all of the apostles. I think at this point he's kind of turned and started, he's talking to all of them. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That's a strange one, but we'll get to that maybe at another day. When I look at this, I want us to note something. It's Jesus' church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not our church. Although we use that phrase sometimes, you know. How is your church? Uh, you know, come visit my church. And we use that phrase sometimes, and I hope we understand what that means. But when we really get down to it, it's not our church. God himself, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and Colossians 1, I believe it's in verse 18, it says specifically, God himself said, Jesus, you're the head over everything in the church. You, it's yours. And Jesus says, I'm going to give the keys to you guys, the apostles. Peter, the apostles, and later on Paul, who would be grafted into that group. They would lay the foundation of who gets to be a part of this kingdom and who doesn't. It's interesting that Peter preaches the first sermon that opens up the door to the Jewish people in Acts 2. A few years later, he's the one that is used to open up the door to say, now Gentile, everybody, this is not just a Jewish thing anymore. It's for everybody. But they have the keys, not us then what would our role be? Well, to discover the keys and pass them on. This fits right in with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the whole world uh, to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And then he goes on to say that we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He says we're an ambassadors. Ambassadors don't set policy. Ambassadors communicate policy. And he says, I've committed to you this message. I've given you the message. But we don't originate the message. We aren't the king. We have no authority. What we do is communicate the king's desire. That's what an ambassador does. Okay, we need to take a step back here for just a second and kind of understand where we are, who we are, where we come from, from a, for, for just a few moments. And if your guests here, just go with us on a quick little journey. You know, where did this church come from? The Champaign Church of Christ and the family of churches that, that we come from. We came from what is known as the Church of, of Christ, mainline or traditional. You say, well, what do you mean you came from them? That's who you are. Your name is the same. And the name is the same, but there is a difference. It's not a huge, massive difference, but there is a difference. The Churches of Christ started back in the 1800s with what is known as the Restoration Movement, people who had a desire to restore New Testament Christianity, to get rid of all traditions and get rid of all the practices that weren't in the Bible 
and just get back to what the Bible says. And out of that came uh, basically four major branches that are all interrelated. The disciples of Christ, the Christian church, the churches of Christ, the international churches of Christ, and then several smaller groups, to our ever-living shame, have split off because people just can't get along like the Lord wants us to. Now, the mainline church was always seen as the more conservative branch and the first major splits in the movement. And it was split out and identified in 1906 by the the Federal Census Bureau as a separate entity. And so how all of that happened? Now, the International Churches of Christ branched off from what we know as the Churches of Christ. This happened along in the 70s and 80s. It came from primarily the campus ministries of the Churches of Christ, focused on Gainesville, Florida campus ministry, but not exclusive to that. And it, branched, it, was, it was characterized by rapid growth, great zeal, evangelistic zeal uh, in particular, ambition, and focusing in on young people. The ICOC came from this. It started back in the 70s with a little church of about 30 people in Lexington, Massachusetts called the Lexington Church of Christ. In their first year, they had over 100 baptisms. Now I want you to imagine something. Your church being 30, and one year later, you're 130. Things started going and cranking then. Phyllis and I joined that group in 1987. By then, we were having... 1,500 to 2,000 baptisms a year. What does that mean? Every day, over five people became Christians. Almost 39, almost 40 people a week. In the span of one month, a church just a little bit smaller than the size of our whole church, people were baptized. And these weren't Midwestern, Southern, evangelical people that just needed to get converted to a doctrine. These were New England folk who, I mean, I, st- I, love, I love them to death, but they don't know no Bible. They don't know Genesis. They can find Genesis because they know where it starts, but they couldn't tell you where Revelation was. These were not Bible folk. These were not good Christian folk, as we understand that term. So, consequently, you get that many new people coming in every month. It was, it was like the Wild West. I mean, there was a lot of great, awesome things going on, but there was a lot of like, holy smoke, you call yourself a Christian? But they didn't know. And so in a desire to, I think, from the elders to shepherd things, and to bring, things became very rigid and very controlled. Why? Because, you remember that movie, Kindergarten Cop? Yeah. Remember the first day Arnold walks into the kindergarten class, and the kids are just, wah, wah, and he's just standing there? That's what it was like. Spiritually, that's what it was like. And so even things started to develop is, we got to do something. This is crazy. And even a, that, that whole study series started coming out to get, we got to get uniformity, we got to get control, we got to get focus. 
We've got to, we've got to keep this from getting too crazy, kind of like Arnold did, right, with the whistle and, the <laughs> and all the kids are in a line, which is fine for kindergarten kids, not so great for adults. But it's very similar to a story in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, and by 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians, <laughs> chapter 13, and I know the notes there say verses 1 through 10, but that's, that's a little bit long, and, 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 and in the interest of time, I'm going to jump down and start in verse 5. Paul is writing a letter to a church that he had planted, and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail your test? And I trust that you will discover that you have not failed the test. And now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that the people will see that you have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though it may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, only for the truth. We're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored, and that is why I write these things when I am absent, uh, that when I come to you, I may uh, not have to be harsh in the use of my authority, the authority that the Lord gave me to build you up, not to tear you down. Now, this is a church that Paul planted. He planted it on his second missionary journey, and by all accounts, he spent about one and a half years there, planting that church, and then he moved on. Not a lot was taught initially. And these are thousands of people now in this church. And these are not good Jewish people. There's some in there, but mostly they're just pagan folks that came to know Jesus. Paul had written two letters to the church in Corinth before the one we just read. It was called 2 Corinthians. To try to help them figure things out. He had visited there. He was on his way there again to make a personal visit, to teach and to call them to righteousness. He calls them to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. This is incredible. The church he planted himself, he says, examine yourselves. The church in Corinth was very strange. A very strange church by our standards. They were incredibly biblically ignorant. When I say Bible, obviously I'm not talking about the New Testament, right? Because it hadn't even been compiled yet. But even the Old Testament, they were very ignorant of God and who God was even as a church. There was division in the church. Some members would not even associate with other members, partially because of economic differences, partially because of racial divisions. They had a terrible misunderstanding of faith and grace and forgiveness and salvation. So much to the point that that not only did they know about immorality in the church, not only did they allow it, they held it up as an example, and look how awesome this church is. We got this immorality going on right here, and we just love them. Members were taking other members to court, suing them. There were division over pagan and idol practices. There was still idolatry going on within the church. And some of it was even being introduced into the worship services. Who wants to join? Right? For many of us, if we're honest, and this hit me this week when I was studying this out, we would be hypercritical of this church. We would say, don't go to that church. They're messed up. Don't visit that. Don't move to Corinth. Don't take a job in Corinth. The church there is a mess. Don't date anyone from that church. 
They are messed up. And Paul, God can't plant a church. Look what he planted. Look what he does. I'm not supporting Paul in the missions anymore. He doesn't know what he's doing. Look at the kind of church he has built. Yet these are our brothers and sisters. Paul said about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very first letter to them, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm always thank my God for you because of his grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await of our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm till the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who wants to be a part of that church? Yeah, sign me up for that one. Same church. Same group of people. Now when I hear this, and when I take a closer look at the other churches in the New Testament, the one in Ephesus, the one in Galatia, the one in Philippi, and so on and so forth, and you read about that, It makes me wonder, our churches aren't really like that, not that I'm really wanting it to be like that in one sense, you know what I'm saying, that's a lot of problems to deal with, but what kind of church are we building? Have we, out of a concern to make sure that everybody really understands everything, out of a concern of keeping things under control, we don't want any too craziness going on, Maybe out of a legitimate, honest concern, we feel like we need to protect the integrity of the gospel. Maybe it's out of a concern that we just don't want too many people leaving the church because it's so emotionally difficult. Maybe out of all that, what we've done is we've made up some extra keys to the kingdom. And we only let in certain people. Certain people who have grown to a certain stage. I was discussing this a few weeks, maybe a month ago now, I can't remember, with my son and his wife, and they hadn't really studied it out. Like I said, they're, not, they're on a ministry in the church in Chicago, but we were just discussing it, and of course, they've got three kids, right? All under five, five and under. Three kids, so their house is pretty much in a, you know, Iraq, flee my country, look, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's always chaos. And I said, the thing is, is we don't want a church full of babies. Because if we did, it would look like this all the time. It'd be a mess all the time. What we want is a church full of adolescents. They can already change themselves, feed themselves, take care of themselves. They can do all of that. And if you're not ready to be at that point, we don't let you in yet. But then I got to look at the Bible and I go, but is that what I see there? Because I am 
a disciple of Jesus, and I have said, I'm going to go by the word of God. That's what we're really going to be looking at and examining and testing in the coming nine weeks. But the call is to be a Bible church, not a this is how we've always done it church. There are many people that say, yeah, I mean, I've heard it said. Many, oh, I know that's what the Bible says, but you don't understand that's not how I was raised. Well, I do understand. Kind of what I believe now and do now and practice now is not how I was raised either. That was part of that change I told you I have gone through in my life. The real test of our commitment is our test to not what we have always done, but what does the Bible really say? This can be a challenge. So for us today as a church, and for us today as individuals, Paul's challenge still holds. Examine yourselves. That's what we need to do. Test yourselves. Now, I did this over 33 years ago, and I found out I needed major changes in my spiritual walk. I was a minister and all this other stuff, but I said I need major changes. Because I took the time to examine and test myself. I still do it today. I pray I always will. What do I need? We all need to do that as individuals, and we need to do it as a church. And I want us to think about this, and I want us to be serious about this. And Phyllis has, has, has suggested, and, and I think it's a great suggestion, what we are going to do as a church is we're going to call the whole church to fast for the, well, not the whole month of January, because we're not going to start it until January the 10th, next Sunday. Give you an opportunity to, because it's not like, oh, fasting, start today. Okay, no, think about it. Pray about it. What am I going to fast about? But one thing I do want you to be praying and fasting about is this study we're going through. But also things in your life. Now, there's an article in the bulletin about it. I even said some potentially touchy things like, don't fast from Facebook or Twitter. Do it like they did it in the Bible, okay? And, I mean, I, and, and, and we can even figure out, I know that there are some dietary things that people say, I can't go without solid foods or whatever, and I understand that. But let's just say, I'm not going to... Let's just not say something like that, okay? And I'm going to fast from television or whatever. I may mean, need to do that anyway, whether it's spiritual or not. But to fast starting next Sunday and going through the remainder of the month of January to really examine ourselves and test ourselves as individuals and as a church. As we strive to be the church, God calls us to be. And if you're a guest here today, and you say, well, okay, I ain't going to fast. Well, that's fine because you're a guest and okay. But I want to encourage you to examine yourself and test yourself. But the only way to really examine and test yourself is to do it in light of the Word of God. Because if I examine myself in light of, uh, you know, I can always pick somebody that I think is worse than me, and that'll make me look pretty good. I don't want to do that. I need to examine myself and test myself in light of the Word of God. We as a church need to examine ourselves and test even some of our practices in light of the Word of God. So for our guests, I call you to examine yourselves in light of the Word of God. We've got cards in the pews that says, yeah, I'd be interested in a Bible study. That's, a, that's a kind of a religious way of saying examine my, yourself. Someone helping you out, just like we go to a doctor, help you out, examine me. You know, 
I go to a financial expert, examine my finances. I go to other experts. So I go to people who maybe know more about the Bible and say, help me examine myself. And we love to do that with people simply because people did that with us. Get out that card, fill it out, say, I want to do that. Examine yourself, test yourself, take that challenge. Paul gave us there and gave the church in Corinth, and because it's in the Bible, it applies to us as well. And then I want to encourage everybody, we'll figure out how to get us all in there. But being at Bible class next week, and for the next nine weeks, because we'll not only be talking about what do we study, how do we say, how do we get here, blah, 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 what does the Bible really teach? We're also going to study what is this going to mean for us a year, two years, three years from now. We need everybody to be on board and to really know where we're going. So I want to encourage you next Sunday to be here. We'll figure out how to make it happen and make it work with the room as we really examine the keys to the kingdom of God. Amen? I look forward to seeing you all next Sunday.